0: David Solomon. Podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. To find out about David's talks, books and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. Uh, this particular talk uh, is challenging. It's very challenging. It's... Um, it's a full buckled up ride uh, that I'm going to preface by saying that perhaps uh, we're going to be looking at probably the most complex and perhaps even the most misunderstood of all the Nuviyim, but there are so many things we could say about this Navi that I have to really, really choose if we're going to have any perspective within the time that we've got, really to wedge in on what I think is the critical focus of this particular Navi. And he's a very, very different prophet from the ones that we've looked at, but I'm going to be looking at him in relation to the theme that's running through this series on the Navi, which is the theme of how we as a people... uh, how the Jewish people, the people of Israel, in whichever manifestation or form they are at any stage of history, how they negotiate the concept of power. Religion is about power, religion is about control. Your eyebrows nearly fell off. I never thought you you didn't hear that in a shul, but it's the reality. Religion is about power and control. It's almost so obvious with the perspectives we have on history that it's hardly worth arguing. What I want to talk about tonight is a Navi who was only too well aware of this problem and realized that the true destiny of Israel... And I'm going to touch upon that word destiny in a second. The true destiny of Israel does not lie in nationalism or religion. But in order to understand this prophet as always, and we're talking about a very, very complex body of text, but in order to access it, and I haven't even said who the prophet is and I'm aware of that, we need to ground it historically, as in all things. That's got to be, for our purposes at the moment, the segue in, so we can understand the conditions under which this prophet is saying the things he's saying, and why his message is so powerful. I am, of course, talking about Jeremiah, who is not simply another prophet. Jeremiah is a Conceptual and spiritual phenomenon that is still ongoing because the critical issues he's talking about are the critical issues of any generation of the Jewish people that come into some form of arrangement with power and religion. Can't think what generations they might be. Well, we can, of course. And here's the thing. So here's the warning. So I may as well tell you now. I'm going to flop it out right now. And that's this. I know that many of you are, like myself, (laughs) we all sit in the world with certain political perspectives. Yep. And we can't deny that over the course of our lifetimes, and I'm looking around and most of us have had enough that we can say over our lifetime so far, we have seen, even those here in their 20s and 30s can still say that, but we have seen, in the, especially in the last few decades, a shift within the Jewish people, more or less, and it's always a spectrum, but more or less to the right. Yep. And that's why it's very, very confronting for us to... Try and understand a Navi, a prophet who is critical in our examination of the problem of the rise of the prophets in the age of power. It's very difficult for our generation now to confront Yirmiyahu who is so fundamentally what would be called today left-wing. There's no real other way of translating what he's saying. To understand Yirmiyahu would be to understand someone today, who would go to the Kotel and stand by the security barriers where everybody's going in, perhaps down by the Shara Ashba or maybe up from the Rova, but stand there as hundreds or thousands of people are streaming in, stand there all day and say, I'm telling you in the name of God... That you are, that your state and your society are going to be destroyed because of your behavior. What would happen to that sort of person today? I was once at the cartel a few years ago, quite a few years ago. I saw a guy go down to say something similar. Uh, He didn't last uh, more than about a minute and a half and not because of the security forces there, but because a bunch of haradium ran up and kicked the absolute crap out of him, before the police saving him managed to drag him away. So until we understand the vibe of Yao, but what brought about that vibe and what are the historical circumstances we're looking at? The book of Yer-Miel is of is one of the biggest books in the Bible. It's one of the biggest books in Tanakh. It's certainly the biggest of the prophetic books. It doesn't have as many chapters as Isaiah, Yeshayahu We looked at last week. Yishayel's got 66 juicy chapters. And Jeremiah has only 52, but those chapters are much longer. It's a long book. And I'm here to tell you that scholars still don't really know 100% exactly which parts of the book relate to exactly which era or which particular um, period of Jeremiah's very, very complex career set against a very, very complex historical framework. Obviously, we only have an hour or so, so I'm going to spend ten minutes talking about the historical framework because without that, we have no chance of understanding why he's saying what he's saying. But I, I've been called. this is minus 800, and this is minus 500, 600, 700, no, that's not right. In the last couple of weeks, we've looked at this period here. We looked at the rise in the first talk of, talk of Hoshea and uh, Hosea and Amos, who are really, really the spark of this prophetic transformation about our understanding of the concept of God in the world, the universalization of God, the understanding that the relationship with God is not one of uh, transactional power, but is in fact one of, it's an ethical relationship. It's in relation, and certainly in connection with the people of Israel, it's covenantal. And we looked last week at this very big explosion of that prophetic idea in relation to the king Hezekiah and the threat of the rise of this uh, incredibly unstoppable uh, geopolitical force called Assyria. (laughs) And uh, we looked at the miraculous salvation that happened around that time. Jerusalem was spared and for all intents and purposes Uh, the kingdom of Judah was allowed to proceed with its business. And as I alluded to last week as well, sometimes it's difficult for us to understand why very, very righteous people have children that are awful. Happens to the best of families. And it certainly happened in the family of the Davidic royal family. And King Hezekiah's son, Menasheh, ruled for a massive chunk of this century well over five decades in which the kingdom of judah and the jewish people generally were more or less subservient to assyria assyria controlled the middle east uh, and the threat of their military intervention the threat of their power meant that we didn't really have Autonomy to speak of. We had, a, we had the king, we had local government institutions, of course, but overall, in terms of our foreign policy, in terms of our taxations, in terms of who we had to toe the line to, and we certainly had to toe the line to, it was the Assyrian Empire with its famous emperors that are going through the 7th century that form the core of what we know about Assyriology. Ashurbanipal, probably the most famous of them, whose incredible library that was discovered at the end of the 19th century is really what gave rise to the whole discipline of Assyriology. This entire century in academic history is very, very well known and studied uh, because we were able to decipher the cuneiform tablets and we understand kind of what's going on there. And of course, archaeologists have crawled all over Iraq, especially at the end of the 19th century. They found all this stuff so we know a lot about it, and we know how the rulers of the Assyrian Empire, <coughs> we know how they conducted affairs, and we know how they ran their policies in relation to kingdoms that were under their rule. And it wasn't, there wasn't any thought necessarily of any type of uh, Judaic independence. But for all that, Manasseh was still... A horrible, disgusting king who ruled the country despotically and violently. No opposition to the totalitarian government line about Assyria was tolerated. The temple could still run, but in a very reduced fashion. But in Jerusalem, they also had to allow for worship of any of the gods recommended by the Assyrians as well as a symbol of the Assyrian mastership over Jerusalem and Judea generally. Remembering and bearing in mind that for the Assyrian Empire, Assyria was uh, the name of the empire, Ashur was also the name of the city, and it was also the name of the god. That was uh, the god Ashur sat at the top of a pantheon. Oh, it was a big syncretic system, pretty much the proto of what's going to happen later. Uh, subsequently, in Greek and Roman uh, religious structures, as far as they echo the power structures of the empire itself, these are <laughs> all complex subjects. And and that is why, because of Manasseh's incredible despotic reign, for almost most of this century, we hardly hear any prophetic voice. There's only one voice, really, that emerges from that period. How his text was saved is a mystery of history. But it is a prophet, and a very unknown prophet. One of the reasons he's an unknown prophet. It's not unknown if you open Tanakh but he's not generally known about because there are no Haftarot from this prophet. And he's basically talking about one thing. It's three chapters and three short chapters. And the first chapter is about the impending destruction of Assyria. And the second chapter is about the impending destruction of Assyria. And the third chapter is about the impending destruction of Assyria. That, of course, is the prophet... dudes that is the prophet Nahum Nahum is talking about one thing but there is no other voice that's there's no other voice of opposition to this horrendous rule and then when Manasseh dies his son comes to the throne who is like his son Amon who is like his father on crack and Amon Decides that it's not enough that the the religion of the God of Israel should be suppressed, it should actually be eradicated. And that is why we have historical traditions telling us that during the two year reign of Ammon, it was only for two years before he was assassinated, the two year reign of Ammon, every scroll of the Torah was burnt by government decree, by royal decree. That's a pretty severe repression, and that was happening in Judah itself. And then when Ammon died, his son came to the throne at the age of eight. And his name is a very important name to remember in Jewish history because this is the critical moment. His name was Josiah. Yoshiyahu and Yoshiyahu didn't really know much when he came to the throne but after a few years when he's about 13 around about his Bar Mitzvah although he wouldn't have had a Bar Mitzvah Bar Mitzvah is a much more recent invention than that but around the age that he's coming into manhood he has a realization a sudden epiphany that he doesn't want to be a horrible king he wants to be a good king. He doesn't want to be like his father and his grandfather. He wants to be a Davidic king, a true Davidic king, like his great-grandfather, Hezekiah, like his progenitor, paternal progenitor, King David himself. Josiah promised himself and promised God when he was very young, I'm going to try and be the best king of Judah there's ever been and we don't obviously have time to go into all the details and complexities of what is now known as the josianic reformation that happened in the minus 620s in judah josiah was born around 640 so sometime starting from the mid minus 620s and what was able, what was helping Josiah in this reformation, this religious reformation of Judah, where they went through the entire country and eradicated every single reference they could find to idol worship or foreign cults, they even dug up the bones of priests that had worshipped idols and burnt them, they destroyed every single altar, every single countercultural thing. They were like the Taliban on nitro turbo and they went through in the name of the god of israel and they cleansed the land what helped them was the fact that by now the assyrian empire itself was in serious decline internal divisions And other things were ripping the Assyrian control on the Middle East apart. And that meant that nations like Judah could act autonomously on their own. They weren't really able to flex muscle militarily, but they could take care of things in their own domains, certainly in terms of uh, indigenous religion. And it is during the reign of Josiah, which includes many, many facets, the, rededic- the, re- the renovation of the temple, the discovery of the last surviving scroll of the Torah, the transformation of that society, the establishment of the book of Devarim as the essential constitution of this monarchy, the fact that the greatest spiritual authority of that age was a woman, the prophetess Huldah, many aspects of this reformation are of interest to us. But we can't go into too much detail. You can look at that separately. We're just historically backgrounding. But it's during that reformation that a young priest from a town called Anatot, called Yirmiyahu, is suddenly called upon by God to be a navi, a prophet. We have a righteous king. Let's have some prophets. And what is interesting about looking at Jeremiah's prophecies and what he's saying in the name of God during the Josianic reformation set up a picture of what is about to happen. This tells us Jeremiah was not a reformation like the one that had happened in the days of Hezekiah. That was more of a transformation that ultimately saved them. This Reformation is a top-to-bottom Reformation. That is, it's coming all about by royal decree. Before we had the God of Ashur, now we had the God of Israel. Yesterday, I was a pagan, heathen, chazafresing atheist. Today, I am officially a Baal Teshuvah, and I'm very from, and I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. It wasn't bottom up, it was top down. In fact, the rabbis also talk about this. They say that Josiah sent inspectors, they really were the Taliban, they sent inspectors to people's houses to make sure there were no items of other cults or religions in the house. And the people would keep their idolatrous images on the backs of the doors. So the inspectors would open the doors, see nothing inside, close the doors and the idols would come together again. That's what the rabbis tell us was going on, whether that's true or not, but it's an illustration of this point. So it wasn't necessarily an authentic, genuine, heartfelt reformation and return back to God. It was a top to bottom religious, uh, autocratic set of decrees. Now, nevertheless, you know. There are probably better ways of doing things, but there are also worse ways of doing things. And if you're going to try and achieve the desired result. And Josiah seemed pretty happy with his reformation. So much so, in fact, that we can tell now, if we look carefully at the literature and we start to understand the psychology of the leadership, is that Josiah perhaps was getting a little bit... You know? And... um, Put up your hand if you don't know what it means. Everybody knows what I mean? I don't mean... I mean... He was Dawan. And that is why... That is why when the Assyrian Empire and its military found itself under serious pressure, and I'll get to what's serious but well let's talk about just serious pressure for a second we'll leave Josiah in Jerusalem I just need to move sideways about 500 miles and what we're going to do is while all that's happening you see here's Assyria, in what is an today in northern Iraq and the Assyrians have these pesky neighbors that they have been controlling for a long long time now but they just keep trying to and that's this city small city state called babylon bavel that's been under assyrian control but eventually the energies of the babylonians break out once again a very big complex field of history but i'm giving just the headlines and the assyrian empire itself finds itself under incredible threat because the babylonians say well now is our turn in the sunshine now it's our destiny to be the babylonians and that's another reason why the Assyrian armies, uh, the Assyrian Empire started going into decline, but eventually, the Babylonians actually managed to conquer and sack Ninveh, the capital of Assyria. It didn't end the Assyrian Empire just yet, but they were on their last legs. They retreated to places like Haran over here in northern Syria, southern Turkey, and so on, these areas. And they tried to re-establish their empire further to the west. Egypt, the only other power to speak of in the region, in the 25th dynasty, under Pharaoh Nehoi II, wasn't having any of this. Once again, by the way, once again, just so that everyone's aware, I'll say what I said last week. These are not fairy tales from the comic books. Do you understand? Everything I'm talking about is not just found in Tanakh. It's found in the Babylonian chronicles. It's found in Egyptian chronicles. This is as factual as we can get. And yet everything in Tanakh reflects this reality. It talks about these events. The Egyptians were having none of this. I have to be very careful about historical background because we have to talk about Urim And they decided... That they were going to come up and help their friends the Assyrians. Because they did not want Babylon, this power on the rise, moving in to take places like Judah and the rest of the Middle East to be a threat. Egypt has always seen itself as a nation with its own destiny. Always. Still does. Goes through various times and we might have had a little gap now of a couple of millenniums. Well, not really because even in the Middle Ages Egypt was... uh, on the expanse as well in the crusades and so on but egypt is a country that every millennium or so will try and rise naturally got the nile egypt comes up and they want to shore up the assyrians and josiah goes that's not happening we're living in a messianic age we can't have a foreign army marching through here in order to fight some other the war because in the age of the kingdom of Deuteronomy, when things are, the society is being run as according to Halakha and according to the Torah, then we have certain promises. One of which is, No sword will pass through your country. We're not going to let this happen. So he meets the army of Necho at Megiddo. The famous battle of Megiddo. Well, it was hardly a battle because Necho goes, What are you doing? Why, are you, why have you taken the Judean army and you're stopping me? I'm not, my fight takes not with you. I'm just, for me, the land of Israel is just a thoroughfare. I'm going off to help the Assyrians fight the Babylonians. Josiah says, I don't care. Thou shalt not pass. In the words of Gandalf. And suddenly there are different accounts, but about 300 arrows pierced the body of Josiah and he either died on the spot or he was fatally wounded and died on the way back to Jerusalem when he got to Jerusalem. The death of Josiah pretty much marked the end of the Josianic Reformation. It didn't just leave the people somewhat demoralized, it ended it. During that Reformation, the prophet Yeremiyahu, this young priest from the town of Anatot, had been talking about the inauthenticity of this Reformation and telling people that they had to find a more authentic connection, a better way of living a more ethical way of living, harking back to the classical prophecies of Hosea, who we can see as a great influence on Jeremiah and Amos as well. But after Josiah was killed at Megiddo, and remember that many people believe that even the entire chapter of the Book of Lamentations is actually a eulogy by Jeremiah to the death of Josiah. Josiah's son came to the throne, a son called... Yehoahaz. And Ahaz is on the throne for about three months before Necho, on his return from that campaign, unsuccessful campaign, takes out his anger on Jerusalem and deposes Ahaz and takes him off into Egypt. That is the first fulfillment of the prophecy that Josiah saw in that Sefer Torah about how your king will be led off to exile. That was the first fulfillment of that prophecy. Jehoahaz, the king, the first king of Judah ever to be taken into exile. Jehoahaz dies in Egypt. He is replaced on the throne by one of his brothers, another son of Josiah. A man called Jehoiakim. You can see why it's very complex and I'm just skimming with a jet ski over the surface of this. Yehoyakim decides that Menashe and Ammon were amateurs when it comes to uh, running a country autocratically and in complete disregard of any sense of ethical responsibility that leadership would have to a population. Everything was about the geopolitical reality and the hold on power. So it is that during the time of Yehoiakim, which is a reign of about 10 years, that Jeremiah's prophecy really starts to take off. And one more thing, just one more historical detail before we deal in that in depth, and that is that eventually in Minus 605, the last remnants of the Assyrian army met the Babylonians at a very famous battle, one of the most kind of turning point battles in history called the Battle of Karchemish. And the Battle of Kalchemish is also one of the most one-sided battles in history. Because the Babylonian king had gone back to Babylon because he was effectively terminally ill. And the Assyrians thought that was a good sign and the Egyptians thought that was a good sign to get rid of the Babylonians. So they gathered, well the Assyrians encamped and they started flexing their muscle over here and the Babylonian army came and at the head of the Babylonian army was the crown prince of Babylon in his first major campaign. Yusur, who we know as Nebuchadnezzar. And at Karchamish. The Babylonian army completely and absolutely schmeiced the Assyrians and they also absolutely and totally schmeiced the Egyptian armies that had come up. So thoroughly did they schmeiced them that there's no more Assyria after that point and we do not hear from Egypt for hundreds of years. Babylon... Is now in complete control Jehoiakim has no choice but to submit and yet the Babylonians never actually managed to invade Egypt Nebuchadnezzar set out to conquer Egypt but never actually managed to do it which gave the Egyptians a kind of hubristic hope that maybe they were stronger than they thought Jehoiakim started to dally with possible alliances against the Babylonian overlords. That is the historical background to what I consider to be the essential point of the book of Euremiol. Well, when I say it's essential point, it's many essential points, but perhaps the most acutely expressed point. And this point comes when you're reading Euremiol in a chapter that very few people are familiar with, but is fundamentally important, and that is Chapter Seven of the Book of Jeremiah. If you read one chapter of the Book of Jeremiah, read Chapter Seven. You Should also read Chapter Thirty-One. But we'll get to that in a second. Because Chapter Seven, God tells Jeremiah to go down to the gates of the temple. And give a speech. It is... Now, in history, a few people have gone down to the temple and given speeches. And most times that that happens, it nearly costs them their life. And certainly that was the case with Jeremiah. But no one else's speeches, no one else's speeches match his you're going you're all going to be destroyed you're all going to be destroyed because you have completely perverted the meaning of the destiny of the Jewish people first of all God never wanted you to bring all these sacrifices. When I brought you out of Egypt, I didn't tell you to offer sacrifices. There's no sacrifices in the Ten Commandments. I didn't tell you to do that. You made that stuff up and you're doing it. And I don't need it. But okay, that's what you do. That's how you want to express yourself. But it's not what I want, says God. All I have ever asked you, I mean, really. <laughs> I mean, I mean, some of you are sitting there looking at me going like this, but really, oh, okay, I'll save that point. All I have ever asked, says God, is that you listen to my voice. And what has my voice been saying to you all this time and remember that at the time of Jeremiah Judaism is about as old as Islam is now and God says and that is over two and a half thousand years ago and God is saying there's only one thing I've been saying with my voice says God improve your ways and your deeds and I will cause you to dwell in this place. But you are all running around thinking that your society is inviolable because you have territorial integrity. And you think it's all about the temple. He mocks them. Everybody's running around going, Hechal Hashem, Hechal Hashem, Hechal Hashem. The temple of God. We have the temple. Nothing's going to happen to us. We have the temple. We're going to go off and do this and we're going to do that and we'll just keep running back to the temple and say, Oh, we've got the temple. We're for sacrifice. We're good. A complete perversion of the destiny of the Jewish people. And there is no worse There's no worse combination says Jeremiah listen to this There is no worse combination says Jeremiah than misguided nationalism and religion And as soon as Jeremiah utters that then God just explodes through Jeremiah in this series of unbelievable statements about what's going to happen, the Babylonians are going to come, they're going to destroy you. And do you know who is at the head of the Babylonian army? God and if you don't think i'll do this says Jeremiah imagine saying this at the cartel today right? and if you don't think i'll do this says jeremiah go and have a look for shiloh today where the sanctuary of god was housed for hundreds of years before king david conquered jerusalem and his son built a temple there where is shiloh now where is shiloh anyone been to shiloh it's a town, Shiloh, right? So they'll take you, when you go to Shiloh, they'll take you to the hill that archaeologists estimate estimate, may have been the Shiloh. And there's nothing. There's nothing. And that's Jeremiah's point. I don't need territorial integrity. That's not what this is about. I have a way for humanity. And the Jewish people and the Torah are the vessel through which that is to be conveyed. And if you're not behaving in that ethical way, then you have no right to be in this land and you're going to be destroyed. Your geopolitical reality is a reflection of your own behaviour and your relationship with God. These are very, very big statements. All right. They... As you can imagine, the crowd went spaghatic. Uh Jeremiah had to go into hiding. They wanted to kill him. Some people were coming along. There were other factions coming along saying, well, wait a minute. He hasn't actually said anything that Micha didn't already say a hundred years ago. Micha told us that this was going to happen. So, you know, he's just a man of God saying the words of God. But the king wasn't pleased with that. And basically, so long as Jehoiakim was still alive, Jeremiah had to be in hiding for most of that time. In fact, there was one other prophet, uh, Uriyahu, who gave a similar message and fled to Egypt. And Yehoiakim even sent the Shabbak, he sent intelligence operatives to Egypt to grab this guy and bring him back to Jerusalem so Yehoiakim could kill him. So Jeremiah had to be in hiding for most of the time. Uh, there are a huge number of incidents that happen in relation to the kingship of Jehoiakim, uh, the famous wearing, well, most opinions actually would put that in the next king, but uh, just a word on Jeremiah's personality, because it would be remiss if I didn't just mention this, because unlike the other prophets, we kind of have a window into Yirmiyahu's personality and his life, perhaps a little bit more than some of the others. And Yirmiyahu really, really, really didn't like being a prophet. He didn't like the things he had to say. He could see that there were problems, but he basically came to despise his own life and his own wretched being Uh, it wasn't a wretched being in the sense that but he had absolutely virtually no control over the fact that he was and he says in chapter 15 and so on you know uh, I'm a person of conflict and quarrel and I can't help it every time I go to open my mouth the Word of God burns in me He was a very very difficult person but so many times. He's beaten up and then he's rescued by some friends and then he's nearly killed and then he's exon he's brought back. And all he wants to do, and he tells you this, all he wants to do is just go and chill out in the desert somewhere, at some hotel, probably by the Dead Sea. Have a nice breakfast, get a good massage. Smoke a fat one in the evenings. Just chill out. But instead, he is driven to become this voice that God is telling the people of Israel. Jeremiah tells them, it's not a question of if you do Teshuvah, it's going to be okay. If you do Teshuvah, the destruction is still going to happen. But if you do Teshuvah, you might just have a chance to survive it. And maybe even be among those who are allowed back. Jeremiah is a prophet at a time where the fate has been decreed. And as a result of his geopolitical machinations, Jehoiakim once again in around minus 597 starts to play, you know, they have a little rebellion conference there every couple of years, you know, the various kings and powers around, and eventually in minus 597, which is a very, very significant year in Jewish history, nebuchadnezzar comes to jerusalem but he doesn't destroy it he conquers it he effectively empties it of its valuables and he takes with him back to babylon the first wave of exiles but several thousand people who are effectively the cream of the society it's administrative classes, it's artisans, it's industrialists, it's craftspeople. Anybody who was worth anything in the society and certainly the nobility got schlepped off to Babylon in that first wave in minus 597. That includes the guy who's going on to go on to become the prophet Yehezkel, Ezekiel. That includes Daniel and many other figures that and importantly and well I missed something because it's actually kind of important as Nebuchadnezzar is approaching Jerusalem uh, what sometimes happened in the ancient world was that if a foreign army was coming to conquer you because they did not like what your leader had done there was a very quick way to demonstrate to the invading army that your leader is no longer your leader And that, of course, is, huh? you kill them, exactly. Mm -hmm. And uh, they pushed Yehoiakim over the walls to show the people at the bottom, the Babylonians at the bottom, that Yehoiakim was no longer going to be one of their concerns. And um, I I I can't tell you how many historically different accounts, different historical accounts there are of this. we're not entirely sure whether Yehoiakim uh, was alive or not when they pushed him over the wall. We do know that he was very much dead by the time he got to the bottom. Uh, and Yehoiakim was replaced on the throne by his son, Jehoiachin. So this is the first grandson of Josiah, Jehoiachin. And Yehoiachin was on the throne, Jehoiachin was on the throne for three months. And eventually he got deposed and slept off to Babylon. So it wasn't really a kingship to speak of. But for years he would be the king in exile in Babylon. And while he was there, they replaced him with one of the last sons of Josiah, an uncle of Jehoniah, Yehoiakim's brother, the last king of Judah, who was, of course, Zedekiah. And during Zedekiah's reign is where we really see Yirmiyahu take off, not just as a spokesperson, but as an actual um, uh, prophet whose entire life and actions were resembling God's messages. Because Tzidkiyahu, it's very very, it's its very difficult to work out the personality and strengths and weaknesses of Tzidkiyahu. Many many, many scholars have tried to uh, analyze him and his actions. We can't tell if he was a good king in a difficult time, or a, or a really, really weak person who was nowhere near the challenges that were facing him. But there was a lot of prevarication. But he wasn't evil like Yehoiakim. You can see in Sittichao's personality a kind of well, this is how I know how to rule. But I'm not going to, I'm not going to go out of my way to wipe out opposition or to persecute prophets. It's just that I just, you know, this is who I am and this is what we're doing. Um, and that, of course, meant all of the different syncretic religious systems. It meant not cleaning up the exploitation of leadership, the oppression of people. Things were not getting better on Sidkiyahu And if anything, they were getting worse because the Babylonians uh, were keeping a very watchful eye on Judah and on Tzidkiyahu to see how he would behave. And of course, because he was a late Judean king, he started making all sorts of possible treaties. So he decides to make... The reason I'm going through this quickly is I'm summarizing a lot of historical material here. But at a certain point, Tzedkiyahu decides, you know what, I'm going to make an alliance with Egypt. They did not want to accept the fate that God had decreed for them. They still believed that they had the national and religious right to exercise their destiny in the world. Yerim had to walk around for three years with a yoke around his neck to symbolise the fact that Kiyahu's job was to submit to Babylon. But there was a major faction in the Jewish people at the time who were saying... No, ye of little faith, wait and see what happens. In two years' time, and this was famous because it was in front of Tzidki Yahu, a prophet got up, a prophet called Hananiah ben Azur, and a whole range of other prophets, but he was the spokesperson of this faction, in front of the king, and representing a whole lot of national religious people. I'm using the term anachronistically, but that's basically what was happening. And they said, we have the temple and the king, meaning not the king sitting in front of me, but the king, Yehonia, is still alive in Babylon. And within two years, God has told me, says Hananiah ben Azor, within two years, he's going to come back. He's going to come back to reclaim the throne. He's going to bring with him all of the vessels of the temple that were taken and a big fat apology from the Babylonians. And he's going to come and he's going to reclaim the throne and once again, we will enter into a glorious phase with a Davidic king. And you know what Yeramiel said to that? Amen! Halavai! But the reality is, you're all gonna die. Starting with you, he says to this prophet. And I know that God has not spoken to you, because I know what it's like when God speaks. And when God speaks to me, my entire being, my entire body, my entire essence is burning with fire. It's not a pleasant experience. When the truth speaks through you. God hasn't spoken to you. You're a liar. You will die. And in fact, Hananiah ben Azur was dead within two months after that. And the Babylonians did not send an apology. And Yechoniah did not come back. Zedekiah sat with this level of prevarication and mischief-making for 10 years, during which time, you know, people were coming to him and saying, Jeremiah is demoralizing the people by telling them that there's no hope. And we want to kill him. who says, well, I don't really want to know about that, but I won't oppose that project if you want to you know so they throw him in a pit in like a deep pit up to his neck in mud with a view probably that he would starve to death he was rescued by an Ethiopian called Evid Melech all of these stories but eventually Tzitkiah just can't help himself and he goes and he rebels and of course spurred on, spurred on by this notion of destiny of power of religion and Nebuchadnezzar comes, but without improving the society without any fundamental ethical transformation without practices that would stop people being oppressed and eventually Nebuchadnezzar comes with his big Big fat Babylonian army. (laughs) And on the eve of the destruction, on the eve of the Babylonians arriving in Jerusalem, Jeremiah, who's sitting in some box somewhere in hiding, hears from a relative that a field in his hometown has come up. For redemption. In other words, a field the way fields were commercially transacted. If there was a field that belonged in your family's domains and came up, it could be it was offered to family members to redeem that field for themselves, and if not, then it would be unsold. but the first act was to redeem the field in the name of your family. Yuremial went to Anatot and bought that plot. That would be like someone on the eve of destruction going and buying an apartment in Tel Aviv as a pure, not just a symbol, a reality of hope. In chapter 25, you will find Yerim most famous prophecy, one of the most famous prophecies in history. The Babylonians will come. They will destroy the temple because that's what God has said has to happen because there is no other way to fix this society. But that exile will only last for 70 years. Jeremiah writes to Babylon. He writes to the first wave of exiles. He writes to the beginnings of community. And he says to them, pray for the welfare of your government. You're going to be there for a little while. Have kids, have grandkids. Watch your grandkids go up. But don't get too settled because in 70 years time you're all going to you're all gonna be allowed to come back. This is an amazing prophecy. No one would have foreseen at that time that at the height of the Babylonians power that within less than a century they themselves would be geschmeased into history. I'm fully aware of what some of you are thinking. Ah, you're saying, well, it's very easy to say about a book that's two and a half thousand years old that he gave a prophecy of something happening in 70 years. How do we really know that was written before he said it? And so on. But if you are reading the book of Yermiah, in one hand and a bacon sandwich in the other, and you have a skeptical attitude towards Nevoah, uh, I would beg you to consider that even amongst the biggest Chazafreshing Aprikorsim, it's very, very difficult to place the book of Yiramiyahu prior to the exile. It is clearly, stylistically, literarily, and in terms of the world that is being described with what, not one anachronistic word, it is very clearly the world of the pre-destructed Jerusalem, the pre-destroyed Jerusalem of the very, very late Judean kingdom. It is a prophecy that held the exiles in Babylonia in hope, until in fact, as we will see next week, the Babylonians were destroyed. At the heart of their power. Of course, they uh, did awful things. The Babylonians. They came. They destroyed Jerusalem. They burnt the temple. They turned the whole place into a, into a into a heap. They took uh, Zedekiah, who at the last minute tried to run away. They slaughtered all his children in front of him and then blinded him so it'd be the last thing he saw and they carried him off in chains to Babylon where he lived as a blind exiled king together with his nephew Yichonia they both lived uh, in Babylon Jeremiah on the other hand when the Babylonians came they actually uh, as as brutal and as total was their destruction they released jeremiah from the imprisonment that he'd been kept in by Tedekiah and not only offered him his freedom but offered to help him go wherever he needed to go and if there's anything you'd like you know they were very impressed with jeremiah naturally not something that jeremiah would have been proud of it was an inevitability he was the prophet that was calling out this destruction and Yeremiahhu decided that he would go and live on a little kibbutz that had been started by a guy called Gedaliah. So Gedalia started with the permission of the Babylonians and said, look, there's all these nebuch sitting around here. We've, you've, you've, you've ripped apart our society. You've destroyed our cities. There's no infrastructure. There's no economy. People have still got to live. So can I set up some sort of absolutely power of structure here just a kind of a, like, a, like, a, like an experimental commune of a few dozen families or maybe even a few hundred families. And we can just set up a little community. We're not aiming at anything other than subsistence farming and just carrying on as what, best we can. And uh, the Babylonians gave Gedalia permission to do that. And of course, Jeremiah said, well, you know, Gedalia, he's not a bad guy. I think I'll go and hang out there. Whatever you do, he said to people. You know, you can come and live with me. Or I'm going to go and live in Gedalia's new commune. Or you can live around the place, right? If you absolutely feel that your destiny is to go with our brethren into exile in Babylon. And you choose that path. Obviously, many did not choose that path. They were taken to Babylon. But if you choose to follow your families there. Then no, go and, go and live in Babylon. Whatever you do. Don't go to Egypt. Don't go to Egypt. But as it happens, Jeremiah decided to live with Gedalia. And of course, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for your national religious Kanaim zealot types. They didn't like Gedalia because they thought that he, not thought, they accused him of conspiring with the Babylonians. The Babylonians are our real enemy. It's the Babylonians are our real enemy. If not for the Babylonians, things would be perfect. We, the Jewish people, are amazing. It's the Babylonians that are the problem. And because he had collaborated with the Babylonians, they came and they killed him. They assassinated him. Unbelievable. And then <laughs> the whole of the commune that was left took Jeremiah by force and went to Egypt. So even Jeremiah's end was sad and pathetic in many ways. There are many, many different views on what happened to Jeremiah after that. Uh, some say he died in Egypt. Some say that he left Egypt and came back. Some say he actually left Egypt and then went back to Bavel. But all of that is speculation. The Tanakh records that Jeremiah Yir- was taken uh, to Egypt by the surviving remnants of Gedalia's experiment. Uh, and that now the Babylonians uh, were in control. So <laughs> I feel like there's a, lot, there's a lot I haven't spoken about. I want to just summarize these m- major themes. It's really about reading between the lines. Yirmiyahu is a contemporary of ours because he's asking some of the same questions that our generation could be asking. I'm not saying that our generation is at the level of the late Judean kingdom. There were some horrible, horrible things going on there. But they are questions that can be asked of us as a people today. At a time where nationalism and territorial integrity seem to sometimes be the dominant themes of the way the Jewish people see themselves in the world. But as Yermio says... The Jewish people have one voice, one one goal, and that is to listen to the voice of God. And the voice of God is not in nationalism, and the voice of God is not in religion. Ha-Kohanim omrim Hashem. Your priests are saying, "Where is God?" <coughs> The Tofseha Torah, those who claim to grab the take hold of the Torah, lo Dawoni, they don't know me. Just because your leaders are nationalistic or religious doesn't mean they are leading you in the right path the right path is recognizable because it is the pathway that causes you to improve your relations with each other and to more ethical behavior that is the voice of god now i know that some of you are sitting here going oh well this is very strange david (laughs) because if that's the case then what is Judaism ultimately at the end of the day but the reality is as Jeremiah himself says in various places the reality is is that the Torah matters for the Jewish people Because the Torah is the guide and repository. And in fact, not even the Torah on its own. If you reify the Torah and deify the Torah alone, it may as well be the Koran. The reality is, it is the Jewish people keeping the Torah. That is the true covenantal relationship in history. I don't want anybody to misunderstand the themes that I'm drawing out of Yirmiyahu. Mitzvot are important. Yirmiyahu tells you, keeping Shabbat is important because it is an ethical as well as divine injunction. All of the injunctions of Torah are ethical. But at the end of the day, they don't count for anything if you're not a mensch. This is what we have learnt from the Nuviyim. This is what Jeremiah was telling us. But he's not even talking to us individually. He's talking to us as a society. We have to be a mensch as a nation. And I put it to you, and I put it to you, that if you ask your average person in the world, which nation is the nation that most embodies the best ideals of ethics and values and morality at the moment in the world, they will not say Israel. And we can jump up and down and say, Oh, but that's the fault of the leftists and the Palestinians and the communists and the conspirators and the this and the that. And the anti semites and the rest of it and that but you know, is very clear. This is no one's problem but your own. You made this because you lost your sense of destiny. I can dispense with any autonomous, independent political state you make for yourselves. I mean, you know those of you who've done a stickle history with me. You know what happened. I'm going totally off message now, but I'm going to say this. You know what happened. You know what happened in 614. I reckon that it's a result of those sins that we were punished by the birth of Islam. Put up your hand if you know what I'm talking about. I haven't got time to go into detail. He knows what I'm talking about. We don't grab the land of Israel and oppress other people in the doing so. We might be able to justify ourselves doing that a thousand times. And as I said last week, the tragedy that our generation may be is we have no choice. But we have to be very, very careful. Because the true destiny of the Jewish people in the world is one of righteousness. If you are righteous, that's your whole purpose here. You're to be righteous. And if you're righteous, then there's nothing you have to fear. There's nothing you have to worry about. But righteousness has to be an authentic righteousness, which was the problem of the Josianic Revolution. But even the Josianic Revolution, or Reformation rather, was itself at least some level where God said, look, you've humbled yourself, but ultimately uh, it'll happen. It won't happen in your lifetime, but it will happen. And I can't end on the big doom and gloom. What I want to end on is the incredible picture, like most of the Niveyim, even when they give Musa to the Jewish people and they say the most terrible things that they have to say. But all of the nevi'im give the picture of what it could be. And they give the picture of what will happen. Yirmiyahu is unique in that he makes a very, very explicit connection between the concept of personal and spiritual teshuva, return, response, a response and return to authentic living that we discussed last week, one of Yeshayahu's big themes, that return and the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. You're not going away, says Jeremiah. You're not going... The Jewish people are not going anywhere. The universe will fall apart, says God, in the book of Jeremiah. The universe will fall apart before the Jewish people is finished doing what they've got to do. Our destiny, in terms of eternity, was assured from the moment that the Divine made a covenantal arrangement with our ancestors. I guarantee you the Assyrians and the Babylonians would have been just as shocked as we are to find out that in two and a half thousand years there will still be people sitting around called Jews discussing these events and what they mean for us. We're not going anywhere, but we are going to stay on the treadmill of exile, exile, exile and redemption and redemption and redemption until the Jewish people actually listen to the voice of God and realize that their true destiny is actually in the exemplification of righteousness. Read chapter 31 of the book of Yeram and you will see what that looks like if it does not make you cry you are not reading it. It is the most mind, in beautiful beautiful simple Hebrew this description of the return of the Jewish people to their true destiny and God saying to them in an amazing way because it's an amazing verse that has been completely misunderstood by the two other major Abrahamic faith systems <laughs> they didn't understand it. it says I will create a new covenant with you a covenant over the heart I will write my Torah on your heart and of course Christianity said ah oh, New Covenant, Brit Hadashah, fantastic. Let's call that the New Testament. That's Jahizas. He comes with the New Covenant. And Islam actually looks at that verse and goes, Oh, Jeremiah prophesied about the Quran because the memorization of the Quran is putting the Torah on you. And only the Jewish people know that in fact, of course, the New Covenant has not yet happened. Because we are still in exile. And because we are still negotiating what it means to have power. The only way to approach the divine, says Yirmiyahu, is from a position of powerlessness. The only times that we have these massive revelations of the divine... I'm finishing up now. These massive revelations of the divine is when we are powerless we were powerless in the desert at mount sinai we were powerless in the babylonian exile, as we'll see next week with ezekiel's vision but when we grab for power god moves away from us we can be very clever and very impressive but we are not fulfilling the destiny of the jewish people now as i warned at the beginning that could be a little bit rough for some I do have notes I want you to realize the notes are much more complex than this talk because I didn't exactly know which angle I would have to segue into it the issue is as I said at the beginning uh, did I talk about this 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 Whoa, the things I didn't talk about whoa but um, it's a very very complex historical period and it's a very complex book and this is my last comment, but here's something. I know that you come, and I know, I know it's very I mean, it's, So many people don't learn Navi, so the fact that we are in a room together, learning Navi is already a fantastic level, but I'm gonna say something. I need you to actually, especially with a book like Uriel, I need you to read it. I need, you to re- I need you to read chapter seven, and I need you to need, read chapter 31. Just those two chapters. I mean, you could read chapter 23, 25. Those are amazing chapters. Chapter one's an amazing chapter. You know, but I made you a prophet before you were born and so on. But chapter 7 and chapter 31 and then tell me if I'm wrong in my interpretation of Yirmiyahu. Because I really, really believe he's showing us a picture of something else than what a lot of leaders of the Jewish world think should be our direction. I know guys who will run up tomorrow and rebuild the temple and reinstitute sacrifice. everyone cool with that everyone cool with that i mean i'm even the most from among us us collective not us this room but us surely have to think about whether or what that actually means whether or not what's that reality obviously the destiny of the jewish people is not to grab territory for its own sake. God owns the world. God owns the land of Israel. It is never given away by the Jewish people. It's only taken away, and it's taken away because of our behaviour. This is the story of Jeremiah, chapter seven, chapter thirty-one. And thanks for, for coming and Thank you for listening. To find out more about David Solomon's books, recordings and classes, or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online.